Oh, there we go. Okay, there we go. Does anyone remember our definition for sin? Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created. So the root of all sin is either when God tells us how to live and we say, forget it. Or God tells us how to live and we're like, we're not listening. Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created. It's not doing or being what he requires. Now, I've noticed that sometimes it's hard for us to remember the uh, answer for a God question and the verse. And I was talking about that with Lauren and Kara this week. And they said, Dad, your questions are too tough. Your answers are too long. Your memory verses are too long to learn in a week. So they challenged me to come up with a shorter God question. So I did it for this week. Although the, the concept of this God question, the, the theme is pretty big. And that is, what is idolatry? Ooh. See, we're not skimping on the depth of the content, just the length of the answer. We're still going deep. Idolatry is a big concept. And so here is our answer that we're going to try and memorize for the upcoming week. Idolatry is loving created things more than the creator. So we're allowed to love all kinds of things in this world, but God says, I want you to love me more than these other things. I want you to trust in me. Center your life around me, not these other things. So these other things that God gives us, whether it's hockey or friends or school are awesome, but we're to love God more than those things. And our memory verse, we can all do this. I believe in us. What's our memory verse? 1 Corinthians 10, 14. Flee from idolatry. Let's, let's do it right now. Everyone together. Flee from idolatry. Everybody in the whole church, let's do it together. Flee from idolatry. Bible memorization is so easy. It's nice and short like that, nice and compact. So let's work on that this week. Go home, think about it when you're having dinner, or at one point in the day, be like, hey, what's our God question? What is it, Avery? Uh, I forget it. I know. In one ear, out the other sometimes. You got to just keep pounding it in. Let's pray. God, we love you, and we love the truth that your word uh, points us to, and ultimately the truth revealed in Jesus. And God, as we, uh, these little ones go upstairs, and as they uh, dig their teeth into the gospel, would you feed them spiritual nourishment in you, and would you grow them up to be Christ-like men and women who um, don't just know these answers and know these ideas from an abstract intellectual point of view, but they, they live them out and they know them in their hearts, deep in their bones, God, because they're fully surrendered to you. We love them when you bless them and their teachers this morning. Amen. Yes. What's that? No. Do you need, can you not see your notes? Do you, need, you want the lights on? Can we take one of the lights, the second, third from the... There? Okay. So you can turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. We're about halfway through the Gospel of Mark, taking some breaks here and there, but we're going to be moving into and through Mark for an extended period now. Like I said last week, the first eight chapters are kind of the slow burn of trying to discover who Jesus is, whether or not he's the Messiah, what does Messiahship means, and this is where we're at in Mark's gospel, is trying to nail down Jesus' identity and its consequences 
for his immediate followers then and for us as his would-be followers today. So I'm going to read the passage. Uh, Today, specifically, we're looking at Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 38, but I'm going to read back into last week's section because they are kind of uh, one, I think they should be read together. So I'm going to start with verse 27. It won't be on the screen, but verse 31, I think, and following will pick up on the screen. But if you're following with me, start at Mark 8, verses 27. And I'm going to read and just pause at some points just to make sure we're understanding some context and we're getting a sense of the momentum of the text. Jesus and his disciples went out to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, who do people say that I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. And then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. Now just pause for a second there. This is really important for us to understand what a, uh, what a screeching record this would be if you're hearing this for the first time. For first century Jews, the Messiah, the Christ that was to come, is going to be a rescuer of Israel. He's going to establish Israel, God's people, in kind of first place amongst the nations. He's going to uh, reestablish Israel as the light to the world and to the Gentiles. And what was presumed that meant was that he was the, the, the Christ or the Messiah, one of the verifications that this is a genuine, this would be genuinely a Messiah, not a false Messiah, would be, would be that in lifting up Israel, he would establish them as a world superpower military, economic might. Being a light in their eyes meant being the nation that every other nation looked up to and went, wow, look at how powerful and magnificent that nation is. Their their God must be the true God, as evidenced by their influence and their power. So the Messiah, when he comes, is surely going to be some kind of, some expression of a conquering king. A king is going to come, and as they look around, as they look around Caesarea Philippi, some, this town that was intentionally renamed to honor Caesar as Lord and Savior, wow, our Messiah is going to be someone who's going to be able to come in and overthrow all of this. This is going to be a mover and a shaker. This person is going to be powerful and dynamic. A, a king of kings. This is going to be a Lord of lords. And on the heels of Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus immediately starts talking about how he's going to have to suffer many things and how he's going to be betrayed by what amounts to the Jewish ruling class, the Sanhedrin, the the Jewish Supreme Court of the day. He's going to be rejected by those people. He's going to be killed. This is very difficult from our side of the cross to understand how dissonant this feels. You're the Christ, you're the Messiah, and now my imagination begins filling in all the blanks of all the awesome things that means. Not just for Jesus, but for me, because I'm part of the 12. I'm in his inner circle, so I get to ride the coattails of this glorious king into battle and into glory. And then Jesus starts talking about layers and layers of suffering, and then how he's going to be betrayed by the people, but he's people's Messiah, and he's going to be killed. 
And this is challenging for the disciples because there's nothing in the Jewish, uh, in the way that most of the Jewish scriptures were understood in their day that would kind of prepare them for this. There are clear prophecies. Isaiah 53, God's going to bring forth a suffering servant to deliver his people. But those were hidden behind these cultural presumptions of power and glory and kind of spiritual upward mobility. This isn't the way the script of a Messiah is supposed to play out. And in all the false messiahs that came before Jesus, all the would-be messiahs, I'm actually the Messiah, once those people got killed by Rome, and there were many of them, there's hundreds before and after Jesus that say, oh, I'm actually the Messiah. If you look at them, they all have the same pattern. I'm the Messiah, a crowd flocks to them, Rome puts down their foot, they kill them, crowds dissipate, movement's over. Because if you were really the Messiah, you wouldn't be killed, you would be the one conquering God's enemies. So there's a lot of confusion at this point, and it's made even more weird by Jesus talking about dying and then rising again in three days. Is he speaking metaphorically? Is that an allegory for something? Is this a weird kind of parable? He must not mean literally, because we know that there's going to be a resurrection at the end of time where all, everyone's going to be resurrected, and then God's going to judge the living and the dead. But no one dies and then comes back to... That's weird. What, what is Jesus getting at? And so Peter's reaction, although we might at first pass say, well, it seems kind of faithless or rude, it, it's very logical. Peter pulls Jesus aside. And he says, never, Lord. This will never happen to you, Matthew 16, 22. And Mark just says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. That's a strong denunciation of someone or something. That's like, God forbid it. Like, you're talking nonsense. We just, you just showed us that you're the Messiah. The pieces are coming into place. And now you're talking about dying and failing in your messianic task? I would never let anything like that happen to you. This is, this is insane. Kind of like trying to shake the sense into Jesus. In verse 33, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God but merely human concerns. Jesus is saying, <clears throat> your imagination is informed by the wrong meta-story, the wrong script. You've been watching the movie unfold to this point, and there's a turn, and you think, oh, this is going to get super awesome. And Jesus is saying, that's not the direction this script is going to go. This story goes in a different direction. It's so different. Your expectations are so different, Peter, from what's coming down the pipe that, it's, that they're literally antichrist. They're Satan they make sense from your worldview, but your worldview is a human perspective. And you think what is going to work in terms of rescuing and redeeming God's people is this conquering king. And as we're going to find out, Jesus is going to conquer. He's just going to conquer in a very different kind of way. Then, verse 34, then he, Jesus, called the crowd to him along with his disciples. You have inner circle he's been talking to at this point. Then he calls the crowds. Anybody who's around. This is very pagan territory. So this is just anybody. Many, many people who would not have been God-fearing Jews. And he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world 
and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Now, as I alluded to last week, this is kind of a, this is a heavy passage. This is kind of the, the one-two punch in Mark that I alluded to last week. Punch number one, Jesus is the Messiah, immediately followed by punch, counterpunch. He is not the Messiah you're looking for. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the rescuer, the deliverer. That's awesome, but you're going to have to reevaluate all your expectations and presumptions around how his life and your life as a follower plays out because he's going to live out and define messiahship differently than what you thought. There's a, it's almost like there's a, if you were, if you were hearing the story for the first time or kind of put, placing yourself in the shoes of the disciples, there's a kind of spiritual vertigo that happens very quickly through this passage. You have astonished revelation, Jesus is the Christ, all the way to shocking disapproval. That can't be right. This is terrible. I don't want all this talk about death. The, the Messiah is a victorious king. So, uh, this is weird. I'm, I'm uncomfortable with it. I want to shut this down. And eventually you land on kind of cautious evaluation. So Jesus is the Messiah, but he's talking about dying, which is failure from my perspective. It's defeat. And he's, saying, he's talking about people who should carry their crosses. Crosses for us are is a symbol of hope because of what God did in and through the cross, but pre-Jesus, they're an instrument of torture. People who carry crosses are on their way to die, to be tortured and executed by the Roman authorities. This, this sounds really masochistic of Jesus. Like, what, what's going on here? Do I really want to follow this guy? Uh, and that place of cautious evaluation is exactly where Jesus wants to put people who in their own excitement or, or um, sinful impulses might say, oh, totally, I'm totally on board the Jesus train. If, things, this, if, this, if this thing is going to glory and going to happiness and going to my best life now, for sure. This is awesome. Sign me up. There's a pretty famous children's game, Follow the Leader. It's only got one rule. Whatever the leader does, you have to do it. Wherever the leader goes, you have to do it, or you get eliminated. So it's pretty fun. Unless the leader does something really reckless. And of course, if you've ever played this game, you'll realize there's that one kid who keeps pushing the envelope just to win the game and he or she is willing to do it if it means a broken arm for them or whatever, because they understand, I up the stakes, and then I can distance myself. No one's going to be able to follow me, because what I'm doing is either reckless, and everyone else kind of goes, ooh, I'm not sure, or it's just too difficult. And here in Mark, we see Jesus, if you forgive the metaphor, kind of playing that kind of game to a bunch of people who are like, yeah, I think this is totally awesome. He says, do you really want to follow the leader? you really want to follow me? Because this isn't a game, and in some cases, some of you are not going to have a lot of fun. Verse 34. 
he called the crowd to him and along with his disciples said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now before I unpack some of what's going on here, I want you to notice that this is addressed, again, like I said, to whoever wants to be my disciple. This is anybody. It's a blanket statement. Jesus is casting the net of discipleship very, very broadly. And so what he's talking about isn't mandatory for some people, but optional for others. Anyone who would follow me, this is the pattern that has to be in place if you want to follow the leader. Now, that's important to note because some people think, I think a lot of Christians see in their imagination, basically two tracks of how you can follow Jesus. There's kind of two ways. The first is like the discipleship track. And that is for like super committed, mega spiritual, uh, ultra Jesus freaky type of people who are like really into this kind of thing. And they're into like things like hardship and sacrifice and carrying crosses and laying down their life. Um, and, And we look at those people and we say, that's awesome. God bless them. I hope there's a few of those people in our church. They really bring a lot to the church, and uh, that, that's awesome. And then there's another track for the rest of us normal people, and uh, this is kind of the more sensible track. And uh, the nice thing about this track is you get to pursue all of your dreams, and all, uh, you get to still orient all of life around you, and you just get to add Jesus to the mix. So it's like discipleship light. It's like Christianity light. Uh, it's like I don't want to pay for, like, the full software, like, just the, the free user version. Like, that's fine. Um, I get to live in increasing comfort and luxury, and I get to generally enjoy a good life defined by me, and I get to do it within the fellowship of a good evangelical church. And obviously, every once in a while, you need to volunteer for something or toss some money into the offering plate or go visit someone in, your, in the church who's sick. But... Um, But the neat thing about this track, as opposed to to the discipleship track, is you don't have to carry a lot of guilt about that because we're all under grace and God forgives and it's all good. God loves us. Now that's a bit of it, maybe a caricature, but I think it lives in all of our hearts to a greater or lesser extent. That idea that, well, there's kind of like Jesus for super serious people and that's discipleship and then there's just kind of like being a Christian and trying your best. And I think what's challenging for me about this passage is Jesus is kind of raising both of those paths and saying there's not two tracks, there's no two paths. There's two paths in the sense of one leads to life, one leads to death, and the path of discipleship is hard and it's narrow, but there's one path, and it's defined by what I'm about to tell you. And it doesn't matter whether you consider yourself super spiritual or not. If you're serious about following Jesus, he says this is what this path is going to look like. And he says the first thing about the path is that you're going to have to deny yourself. You've got to deny yourself. Now, this is important. I, ca- I have an undergraduate degree in psychology, and I've seen and read and experienced all kinds of unintended misinterpretations of this text spiral out into some really unhealthy expressions of what people presume this means and its application. So I want to talk for a second about what denying yourself is and what it isn't, because this is really, really important. Denying yourself is not, in some ways, denying or degrading who you are in terms of your identity as an individual. You are an image bearer of God. You are created good. You are, yes, marred because of 
the curse of sin, but God loves you and loves and likes you in your unique image-bearing potential. And so we're not talking about somehow acting as if we don't matter or minimizing our individuality or minimizing our importance. When Jesus talks about denying yourself, the self that Jesus is speaking to is that impulse within us that would seek to make life all about us, where we're the center and everything else gets defined by how does this work for me? Does this bring me joy? Does this bring me happiness? Does this bring me pleasure? It's denying a self-centered way of viewing relationships, the world, your vocation, your finances, uh, your involvement in church. It's about rejecting what Paul will talk about in the New Testament a lot. Some translations talk about the flesh. And when the Bible says flesh, it doesn't mean literally our bodies, but it means those uh, worldly impulses, meaning sinful impulses that would carry us away from God and God's purposes. So when Jesus is saying you have to deny yourself, what a first century Jew heard was you have to take yourself off the throne, the control throne in your life. We last week used that metaphor of that committee where maybe you're the chairman of the committee, you have all these voices and you listen to them and you take counsel and then you decide because you know what's best for you because yourself is in control and yourself is sovereign over your life. And what Jesus is saying is if you want to follow me, step one is anything approximating that and you're trying to mesh that with Christianity, it, will, it won't work. You can't do that. You have to renounce that. You have to fire your committee and you have to say, Jesus, you now are sovereign and you are now Lord of my life. I can listen to other voices. I, I can certainly learn from other people. I appreciate the wisdom that other people have to give me, but it's all now filtered through you and your word. You are the king. Everyone else is now a consultant that I put through your word and your spirit. And so to deny the self is really about turning away from the idolatry of self-centeredness. And every attempt to orient one's life around the dictates of self-interest. And, that's a, and, and a, this has to be made really, really clear because a lot of people hear self-denial and what they do is they practice self-loathing or self-deprecation. And just like when people hear humility, they think, oh, humility means being like, I'm just a terrible sinner, I'm brutal, wah, wah. And what we're seeing here is Jesus doing something different. Jesus isn't saying, and I don't think anywhere in the New Testament is there really permission for us to be self-loathing. If you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Are you a sinner? Uh... In a complicated way, yes and no. Yes, you obviously still sin. You have a sin nature. But no in the sense that whenever letters are written to the churches, it's always to the saints in Ephesus, to the saints in Nelson. You are now a saint. In Christ, you've been made a saint. That is who you are. That's your new identity. Now you live into it. That's not a, a denial about the presence of sin in your life. It's just saying being a sinner is no longer the centerpiece of your identity because of what Jesus has done. And so... This isn't about denying ourselves or somehow I'm, um, I'm a really wise and mature and spiritual Christian. If I just kind of walk around forlorn and pseudo down on myself and kind of highlighting the ways that I don't measure up. In fact, I would argue that's a direct contradiction to what Jesus is saying is a prerequisite for discipleship. Because if you go around forlorn, woe is me, I'm such a sinner, 
you know, and you're constantly drawing attention, whether it's in the imagination of your own heart or to other people, it's all about God, it's not about me, blah, blah. That can actually, that can actually be a different way of being very self-centered. You're literally thinking about yourself all the time. Now you're baptizing it because it's like, well, it's humble, isn't it? No, it's not humble at all. You're still making yourself central, and you're still centering on yourself. But true humility, true self-denial, is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking about yourself less. People who are truly humble and are operating out of a Christ-centered sense of self-denial where Jesus is on the throne, they don't think less of themselves. They understand, I've been bought with a price. The Son of God came and died for me. Why, how could I ever get away with trying to think that I'm somehow worthless or terrible or this kind of stuff? No, that's the lies of the enemy. But, so I don't think less of myself. I just think about myself less. I just go through my day naturally more and more, focus more on loving God and loving other people. I'm not always bringing everything back to, I did this for this person. I hope that kind of goes in the emotional bank account and they remember that because I could see in a few weeks and this and then you're going into work and, and, and helping people on the condition or you're moving through your day and saying, hmm, I'm not really having a good day. You're so concerned about your own needs and your own wants. You're not looking at the opportunities you have to glorify God and other people. So self-denial isn't about thinking less of ourselves. It's just thinking about ourselves less because we're now increasingly focused on Christ and his kingdom and how to love other people. And a good litmus test for whether or not you're actually living this uh, cruciform, this cross-bearing pattern of denying yourself is Romans 12.10. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another about yourselves. I have found people who are egocentric, whether from a religious point of view of, oh, it's not about me, and kind of that false piety, or literally just egocentric in the sense of like, well, how is this working for me? They can't honor other people above themselves. It burns them too. They're always looking, yeah, I'll do that as long as. They, they, they always see life as an exchange. And if you are living out of this cruciform pattern of self-denial, one of the fruits is that you, you, it just brings you joy to honor other people. Not honor other people and dishonor yourself, which we can often read into the text. That's not what the text says. You can honor the fact that you are, that the, uh, the living God pursued and died for you and has called out to you. But now when I come across other people, I say, I want to live in such a way that that person understands that. And I'm not going to worry about them understanding how important I am to God. I'm gonna, I, want, I want to live in such a way that they understand how important they are to God, how precious they are. I'm going to honor them. I asked someone this week, what does it mean to deny yourself in the context of this passage? And this is someone I knew back from um, pastoring in Hamilton. He was a young adult at the time, and now he's in his late 20s. And he says, I usually think it means consciously and willfully setting aside my worldview that says this, is, this life is mine. I have the right to use it however I choose. And so this would include how I use my time, how I spend my money, where in the world or a town I decide to live and raise a family, what school my kids go to how I use my physical body, nothing is off limits. And the continuation of that decision is not only to lay down my life to live as I want to, but then to have the Spirit shape and guide me in how to spend this one life. And as he shows me through circumstances, scripture, and whatever other means he uses, I'm called by Jesus in those words to participate, to actively say yes and take steps in that direction. So self-denial is simply about Recentering your life on something other than yourself. 
by taking up your cross. That's the second thing. You follow the leader by denying yourself and by taking up your cross. Now, just right out of the gate, we need to make something really, really clear. And, I, and again, this, is, this can feel like a, a Debbie Downer. It's not meant to. It's just meant for... This is a smelling salts of discipleship where Jesus is just saying, I want you to go into this with full expectations. The most dangerous thing you can do, have in any relationship is wildly um, unrealistic expectations. If you have wildly unrealistic expectations in French, going into a friendship you'll just be disappointed, not just more often, but to a, the, the bottom falling out of that will be so much deeper because you expected this person to be ideal. If you have wildly unrealistic expectations for marriage, when you are hurt, when your spouse wounds you, when your spouse betrays you uh, or uh, sins against you or you see uh, the inconsistencies and, and brokenness of your spouse, you won't just be disappointed, you'll be so disappointed because your expectations are out of whack. And I think what happens sometimes is people are invited to become a Christian and they're kind of the, there aren't any expectations set and people fill in the blanks and they have this grandiose uh, romantic picture of what it's going to be like to follow Jesus and then it doesn't pay, play out that way and then they think they've been betrayed by God. This isn't what I signed up for. Or they feel betrayed by the church because, well, when the pastor talked about it, it was always sunshine and, and roses and rainbows. And that's not my experience. This is tough. And some days are glorious, and some days are difficult. No one told me that. Maybe I don't want to do this. So Jesus, wisely, right at the start, is saying, anybody wants anybody, no matter where you are to this point on your life journey, you've got to be willing to take up your cross. And that right away should help us to realize Jesus is not calling people to himself. His priority is not to make your life easy or to make your life prosperous. You may have easy stretches in your life. You may have prosperous stretches. If you do, thank God for them. That's a blessing. That's, you have more room now. You have more time, energy, and money to bless and help other people and serve the kingdom. Thank God for it. It's not a bad thing. But don't go into Christianity thinking that's just the basic pattern, spiritual upward mobility. Christ does not call his disciples to make their lives easier, prosperous, but to make them holy and productive for the kingdom of God. And that's different. In the same way that I would talk about marriage not being about your happiness, it's about your holiness, that's a good, that has a good parallel to Christianity. Following Jesus isn't about your happiness, but it is about your holiness. And of course, as we'll find out, as you grow in holiness, you experience a new and renewed kind of happiness. But Jesus wants to make sure we understand this is a cross-bearing endeavor. Cross-bearing isn't an established Jewish metaphor. Uh, it's, a, it's a Roman thing. It's how Rome subjugated and literally tortured into suppression, a submission, uh, those who would seek to either disobey Rome, but mostly disobey Rome by trying to fuel insurrections, political overthrows of Rome, all the insurrectionists, this, this is where you end up. You end up on the cross. Because Rome wants to say, mm, no, we're in charge. We will continue to be in charge. And you have a one-strike-and-out policy. We'll tell you to step down. If you think you can overthrow us, this is what will happen. So carrying one's cross, and that's what would happen on your execution, you carry the cross for a long time in public, usually naked, 
So it's incredibly humiliating. It's degrading. You've already been beaten and tortured, so you're very, very weak. It's to show that you are unquestionably <laughs> under the thumb of Rome. You are under the authority of Rome. Your insurrection hasn't worked. You are in obedience now to an authority which you previously rebelled to. And so when Jesus says, take up your cross, what he's saying is, you are now to live your life in such a way that it is humbly and faithfully clear to those who spend enough time around you that you are in submission to Jesus' lordship. That is very, very obvious to those who would spend a significant amount of time with you. Luke 9 notes that Jesus said, you were to take up your cross daily. This isn't a one-time thing. When I became a Christian, I promised the world to Jesus, uh, and I'll take up my cross in a kind of a symbolic prayer. It's every single day I do this. I arise out of bed and realize, today I'm living for you, God. Teach me how to do that. I'm not sure how to do that in this area. I'm stumbling here, but I want to learn. Will you help me? Because I'm in submission to you. I want to obey and live for you. That's a good question for us to ask ourselves. Are we living in such a way that we're humbly and faithfully demonstrating to others in word and deed that we're in submission to the authority of Jesus? And obviously, probably for all of us, there'd be places where we're like, yeah, I think I'm doing that really well over here, and I've got a lot to learn over here. And that's okay, but our aim should be to be denying ourselves and not rationalizing that and saying, well, I I do my part, so that's fine. No, denying myself, putting Jesus in the center, taking up my cross. Third commandment, Exodus 27, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Not my favorite translation, because in Hebrew, the word misuse has at its root the idea of exaltation or holding up or to carry something. So when I talk about it with my children, what I say is the third commandment is you shall not carry the name of the Lord your God in vain. What does that mean? That means um, if you're going to talk about yourself and claim that you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus or disciple, you better carry that identity in a way, not that obviously other people are going to say, wow, that person's obviously perfect, but that says that person is genuinely a sincere Christian. They're not a hypocrite. They don't carry the name in vain. They're not wearing their Christian t-shirt, but their attitude, this person's a total jerk uh, in, in my school. Or they don't talk about how they went to youth group the other night, and then they show up on the soccer team, and they're swearing, and they're just uh, reactively moving into all the same patterns that everyone else does. Or in our workplace, they're not talking about how powerful the sermon was on Sunday, and then always seem to just be out for their own interest. They never go the extra mile in helping other people. Their attitude is kind of like, I've done my part, so it's not my problem anymore. Taking up your cross daily means carrying God's name, not in vain, but to do it with integrity. And the third thing Jesus says is, follow me. See, just denying yourself, decentering yourself and serving some other generic, grander purpose, and then learning to live into that grander purpose, that isn't the ends of discipleship to Jesus. It begins and ends with Jesus. He says, you've got to deny yourself. You've got to take up your cross, and you've got to follow me. It's possible to do the first two parts of that and not do the third. Discipleship is about putting Jesus at the center and learning what that means. It's daily denial of self-centered living, not just in the service of something greater, it's in the service of Jesus and his kingdom. 
And that means that we follow Jesus by walking as Jesus walked. 1 John 2, 6 says, says whoever, claim, whoever claims to live in him must live as he did. That's the most basic uh, one-liner on discipleship probably you can get. If you claim to be a Christian, then you are walking as Jesus walked. He's your mentor. You are reading the Gospels consistently. You're constantly working through the question in a really robust way, not in a superficial way, but what would Jesus do? How do I live where I am? How do I live within my marriage, in this particular situation at work, in this conflict that I'm having within my family, in this opportunity that I have in my community? How am I entering into those things in a way that is Christ-like and brings the goodness of Jesus to bear on these situations? And if you're wondering how did Jesus live, yes, you can read the Gospels, but another shorthand way to do it is to remember that, in a sense, the entire rhythm of Jesus' life was not my will, but yours be done, Father. So that's how we live every day. That's what it means to deny ourselves and take up our crosses and follow Jesus, is to learn to live out of that posture. And it is a learning process. I have a better handle of what it means to follow Jesus faithfully in certain areas than I did five years ago and certainly than I did 15 years ago. But I'm learning because I'm following Jesus. I'm allowing him to correct me. I'm allowing different friends in my life as they pray for me and point me into the scriptures to say, oh yeah, that's out of joint there. I didn't really notice that. Or this pattern that I'm doing over here, I just inherited that from my parents and my family of origin and I just, I just default to it. But that's not actually Christ-like. I need to learn a different pattern. And so I'm putting those things to death and then walking in the newness of life. And probably then, like now, no matter how many caveats I say, and Jesus doesn't provide many, there can still be a bit of a, a depression on the crowd. Because especially in our cultural context, talking about self-denial, no matter how much you make sure people understand what that is or isn't, it still sounds kind of bleak, and it still sounds kind of negative. Right? I mean, there's got to be someone here this morning who you're like, oh, this was not maybe the best Sunday to show up. Like, it's okay, but uh, I was hoping it was a little bit more like hoorah, cheerleading Sunday. But that's why in verse 35, Jesus says, whoever wants to save their life is going to lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. See, this spiritual principle that lies at the heart of life if you try and save yourself by centering on yourself, if we avoid this talk of denying self, taking up your cross and following someone else into their... Um, stop living life as if you're the, uh, the hero of your story and you're the point of the story, you're, you're the lead character in your life and it's actually Jesus, you substitute those roles out, now you're a supporting character... Jesus is brazen enough to say you're actually going to lose your life. All that you're trying to get at, it will slip through your fingertips. It's like sand. You, you, harder you try and grip it, more and more of it escapes. And I think if you just take for a moment and reflect on your own life, reflect on the lives of people around you, those who have stubbornly said, I am my will be done. I know what's best for me. I know what's right for me. I'm going to guess most of us 
don't look at those people and say, oh, I'm actually pretty envious of where they are in their lives, in their relationships, in their marriage, in the, in the posture. Like, I, I would love to trade places with that person. Even though they got everything that they wanted and thought they wanted, maybe they even seized it, the wealth, the fame, whatever it is, you fill in the blank. Jesus says, you're actually going to lose it. You will lose it. You'll lose your life. But whoever loses, and I see Jesus using <laughs> quotation marks there, whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel is actually going to save it. You decenter yourself. You say, I'm going to give my life to you. And then God in his wisdom brings all the relationships, all the opportunities, all the things that are best tailored to you because now your hands are open. And instead of saying, my will be done, you're saying, your will be done. And now God can work in and through your life in a totally new way out of surrender. John 12, 24, Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a seed. It's just a seed. But if it dies, if it dies to itself, to its own agenda, it will produce many seeds. Now he's speaking there about the resurrection. But its implications, I think, are still huge for discipleship. If you want to hold on to your little life, and if you win that game, then you get, you get your little life. But it's no life at all. If you lose your life and submit it and give it up for me, five years later, ten years later, fifty years later, you're going to say, I have taken hold of the life that is truly life. Thank you, God, for not allowing me to go down the path of getting what my heart desired then. I was so foolish and stupid. God actually knows what's best for me. So to close, I'd ask the question, are you following the leader? You can believe in the leader. You can admire the leader. You can be thankful for the leader. You can show up on Sunday and sing songs to the leader. That is not the same thing as following the leader. Of learning every day to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. Are you doing that? Are you learning to follow him faithfully in all areas of life? Leisure, imagination, finances, your loves. If you're not, Jesus says you're actually losing out. And you're losing out on a lot. And not just in this life. You may actually lose out on eternal life. Because in verse 36, he says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world? So you've put yourself in the center. And let's say you win. Let's say you succeed. And you get it all. And then you face God's judgment one day, you have nothing to stand on, and you are removed from God's glory and presence forever. What are you going to do at that point? Are you going to try and barter with God? Whoa, I got all this stuff, God. Can I like do it like a switch? Can I give you some of this stuff? Can we work out a deal? Jesus is saying no. Think very carefully how you live and who you're choosing to follow, because it's possible to gain everything in this life and lose out on the eternal life that starts now and continues on forever. Don't miss out. Don't forfeit your future trying to establish the kingdom of yourself. Turn to Jesus, put your faith in him, and then move forward every day with the resolve to take up your cross and follow him into his story and into his future. Let's pray. God, I pray for, I know this is a heavy message. This is a, 
This is a message, God, that needs your spirit to move it in such a way that we really hear it, that we don't just walk away um, deflated. That's not your intention with this text. That we would walk away um, sober and clear-minded, that we would hear your spirit speaking to us through this text. This is an intense part of Mark. And this was intense when you issued this challenge to the crowds 2,000 years ago. It's intense when we issue it today, God. But would we not 